Hello everyone and welcome to the CEO Journals podcast. For those of you that are new here, I am your host Ethan Bridge and I just want to start off by saying thank you all for tuning in to today's episode. Many of us are unable to unlock our full potential as we simply don't know who we are as an individual. But some of you may be thinking, how on earth do I find out about my true self? Well, don't worry, because today's guest on the show, Stephen Kuhn, has gone through that exact journey. Joining the army at 19 years old, he completely reinvented himself. Going in, he had no idea who he was, but from the moment he shaved his head and put on that uniform, it was a clean slate. This isn't the only time Stephen has had to seek a deeper meaning to his being. Throughout his journey, which we go into in great detail, Stephen actually ended up being homeless, so he decided to live with Benedictine monks. What he discovered during his time living there was fascinating, and we talk all about it. This time spent in the monastery with nothing to do but think about himself as an individual is what has helped him to evolve into the incredibly successful entrepreneur he is today. I can't wait for you all to hear what Stephen has to say. His journey is incredible. From joining the army, to becoming homeless, to being Mick Jagger's bodyguard, to now the incredible entrepreneur, you're in for a treat this episode. So without any further ado, let's dive straight into the show. Enjoy. Hello everyone and welcome to CEO Journals. I am super excited for today's episode because we have Stephen Kuhn on the show. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. So (laughs) by way of introduction, for the listeners who don't know who you are, would you mind just giving us a quick 60 second introduction of who you are and what you do, please? Sure. I'm, uh, my name is Stephen Cohn. I'm living in Hungary at the moment, but lived in nine countries over the last 25 years. I came to Europe in the United States Army, uh, and after uh, it's almost seven years in the military, I went to Iraq. And when I got back from Iraq, I, I got out of the Army and stayed in Europe. And since then, I've been doing business turnaround um, and uh, product placement at big box retailers, and I dabble in M&A a, a bit as well. Awesome. I cannot wait to dive into all of that. But the the way I like to start all my episodes is sort of throw it back with my guests and ask them about their time at school. I just feel as if this gives my listeners a bit of background to where you came from and see if some of them can relate to your sort of same sort of background. So let's focus on a 16 year old version of yourself. How were you? Yeah, well, that 16 year old hated himself. He was, uh, he played, he tried every sport failed at every single one. He was the big doofus on the team that always lost the game for everybody. Um, no self-esteem, no self-confidence. Um, you know, had various fathers and father figures throughout my first 16 years. Um, and I just wanted to get out of there. I just, I just, you know, I had to leave. I had to, I knew I had to leave because I knew that as long as I was there, <clears throat> the picture I had of myself was, was, was a reflection of what everybody thought of me. So I, I always felt like I had to, you know, when they thought, oh, there's Kuhn, you know, he's, or Steven, he's, you know, he's a little slow or whatever. Uh, I would just fall into that role. And I knew that I had to get, a, get away from there. And, if, and, and the way I wanted to get away from there was to just challenge myself as, as, as much as possible. And that was the military. So cool. I was like, I'm gone. 10 days after high school, I shipped off. So going into the military then, did you have an idea of the person you wanted, wanted to become? 
Uh, no, I just wanted to know who I didn't want to be. I, I just knew who I didn't want to be. And when I went in, uh, I just realized that, okay, I have to be someone who's proud of himself or self-assured or whatever you want to call it back then. Right. And so when I went in the first day I sat down there, I had, I had, it was a 1980s. So I had like this, you know, like the mullet kind of thing going, you know, like the nice. disco mullet. And, uh, uh, I remember when the razor touched my, my head and started shaving my hair off and I was like, this is the new me it starts today. And from that point on, I pushed myself harder than I could. I ran at the front of the formation so I wouldn't fall out. I mean, I would be running vomiting. It wouldn't stop me. I, I'm not stopping. I'm just, I'm just going to push myself as far as I go. And if I die, then I die. That, that was my attitude. Yeah. And of course I did. Of course I didn't die. Um, and I proved to myself a whole bunch during boot camp. Uh, and then when I went to Germany, I was thrust into a whole new culture which, uh, which was, you know, another adapt. So I, I went to boot camp for five months and then I was shipped off to, uh, to, to Germany. And, uh, well, first I went back home for 20 days after boot camp. And after you're in boot camp, you gotta realize in boot camp, they rip you down to nothing and they degrade you. And they, and they, at least they used to make you just, just drive you into the ground and then they build you back up again as a machine. So I went home and everyone who ever messed with me, you know, they, they just, they didn't even, they just, you know, like that. It was just, I just, I was so uh, self-assured of my ability after that five months. And it shocked me um, that when I look back at it, how it only took five months. Yeah. But it was because I just went all in, you know, I just went, I didn't even call home like maybe twice or something. I just like, I'm gone. I'm done. I'm doing this full in full immersion, no distractions, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it really changed my life. From a young age then was going into the army that you'd is, is that something you'd always plan to do or well, at that age did you sort of decide that I need to do this to become the person I want to become sort of thing? Well, you know, it, you know, I, I like to say it was cause of patriotism because, you know, my family has been in uh, every battle since the country was founded. You know, my grandfather, great, 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 great grandfather, Michael Kuhn fought in the revolutionary war, you know, the sons of the American revolution, that whole bit. Um, and all the way up, you know, until modern day. And so I thought, you know, yeah, I guess I should follow in the footsteps. <clears throat> Not that I finally did it for that reason, but I, you know, that was part of it, I guess you could say, but I, I knew that I had to get out. <coughs> Excuse me. That's okay. Um, I hate to sound all cliche then, but what from the army was like your biggest takeaway? What do you remember seeing throughout your time of service that you've actually been able to carry forward throughout your, let's try and relate it to business and entrepreneurship. Right. That's what the book is great. about. <clears throat> great, uh, great question. Um, I, 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 I get this a lot and you know, a, a lot of people think, okay, well you're a leader because you led in the military, you're a sergeant, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it's true. You learn the structures, you learn, uh, you know, uh, all the things that you're supposed to do according to the rules, but you learn little to no soft skills. So um, th that was an ad adaptation for me. But what it did teach me was there's no, uh, there's no, no, there's no failing. There's no, I can't do it. There's no, you know, oh, I don't know if I can. It's always, okay, let's go. And we, and we just do it. I mean, even the thought of failing can't cross your mind. If it does, then you're already distracted. Yeah. So what, whatever we do, or my teams, or I did, I taught this. And that's where HIT comes from, honesty, integrity, and transparency, what, what uh, my, my sort of nickname is, the HITman. And, and it comes because, look, I'm gonna be honest with you, with, with myself and with you. I wanna be transparent with that honesty to you and to the world around me. My ongoing re re um, reputation is 
the byproduct, which is integrity. And every healthy relationship on the planet is based on integrity. And once you have that, you have self-assurance. Now that's a diff difference than pride, different than pride. You know, pride, um, as someone who's proud will tend to, to defend themselves or defend their position or defend what they're proud of. And that automatically invites attacks or conflict. So when you're self-assured, your presence, your knowledge, the way you carry yourself speaks for itself. So there's no need to justify or to, you know, defend your position and stuff. So I think that's what it gave me the most. It really gave me that solid footing to know who I am, that I pushed myself psychologically, physically through, you know, the most arduous situations that I could just to prove that to myself. Yeah, for sure. And that's amazing as well. Just knowing that you've gone in literally this broken boy almost at 19 years old. And then how long did you serve? Seven years? Yeah, just almost eight, yeah. Yeah, and you've come out and completely revolutionized your life. Yes, and, and I did too, because I came out and I just went like this, dun, 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 dun. you know, my goal was when I went in the army to open up a, a cocktail bar in Berlin. And le less than three years after I got out, I opened a cocktail bar, then I opened another one, then I got recruited by a South African uh, company to take them to Germany, which I'd never done before. And it was a big corporation, opened up seven locations, and I got headhunted from British PLC. Uh, and I opened up for them, I think it was 35 locations in nine countries, and I ended up managing the whole, the whole uh, um, operational and development side of the business in America and all over Europe. 87 locations, nine countries. It was, uh, it was something else. And that was, you know, I was 30 what, 33 years old, already at the top of my game, making 250, 300,000 a year, um, thinking that I had it made, you know? So yeah, yeah the, the army, I mean, out of high school, that would have never happened. Yeah. So that, with that cocktail bar, was that your first sort of entrepreneurial venture? Yes, 19, 1996. Awesome. So can we talk a little bit about that and sort of yeah. how you, because you'd always been in the army. Did you ever consider yourself an entrepreneur? Is that always something you wanted to go into? No, I, I, you know, I, I never looked for a career in my life. I never sought a career. I never tried to find a career. I just did what I wanted to do, right? So the cocktail bar, I never looked at it as being an entrepreneur or something special. I just wanted to have a cocktail bar. Yeah. And that, that, that heads, headstrong attitude that I had in the military actually got it to me because I didn't have any money when I got out of the Army. But I needed about 200,000 euros or DMARC at the time, which was, I don't know, $150,000, I guess. Um, and I didn't have it. So I, I went shopping. And uh, I got investors. I got, uh, which was actually the brewery, uh, yeah. where I bought my beer and liquor and wine and stuff like that. And I made a deal with them: uh, you finance my bar, pay for everything, and I'll pay the loan back with interest, and I'll buy your beer and liquor only from you at a, at an increased price of ten percent until the loan's paid off. Mm. And they're like, "Really?" I'm like, "Yeah." So I did it, and I did it three more, uh, two more times. So I, I did two more cocktail. I had three cocktail bars in a nightclub then. So. For someone that didn't really consider themselves an entrepreneur, that's quite a, a business head-like thing to do. But it's not. It's not. It's, I want to do it. I want to find a way to do it. It's just like, mm. just like I said, if I want to do something, I, I do it. I don't look for the reasons why it won't work. You know, yeah. it doesn't even cross my mind. If I want to do something, I'm going to do it. There's no, there's not even an, an iota of, oh, what if it doesn't work? Or what if this doesn't, it just didn't have, it just didn't exist for me. Because I mean, yeah. look, Anything that happens in the civilian world, anything, I don't care what it is. I mean, I was in prison in Germany. I, you know, nothing. It was a joke for me uh, psychologically and physically. So I was like, I got this, you know, and I'm not saying I'm a hard guy. I'm definitely not, you know, like a Navy SEAL or anyone like that. But because I pushed myself past what I knew at the time was my limit, 
um, it's all relative. So like I remember when I was um, after Gulf War, I went back to Washington DC to march in the parades in the New York City. I got I got asked to go march in the victory parades and there was a Vietnam veteran walking me saying, oh, you don't know what war is. I was there for three years, you guys were there, you know. And I said, dude, first of all, come here and march with us. So he, he was really cool about that. And I said, look, man, this is my Vietnam. I don't know how it could get worse. I don't wanna know how it would be if it was worse. I don't wanna feel worse. I don't wanna know any of that stuff. For me, this is the worst I've ever felt. This is the worst I've ever seen, and that's good enough for me. You know, so it's all yeah. relative. It's all relative. So even though some might say, "Oh, you weren't you weren't a Navy SEAL or you weren't Special Forces or whatever," I still pushed myself toward past my own thought mm. of a border or the line that I didn't think I could cross. And so, trying to compare it to other things or whatever, it's really difficult because everyone has that breaking point, that crossing line kind of thing. You know? Yeah, and. That's the thing. It's, it's all about perspective. And that's the same thing with business as well. People could have that exact same attitude. Um, so it was all going quite well, I assume up until 2008. Well, first 2002, the first crash was 2002. So 2002, I was at the top of my game. I was in Chicago. I was running the the joint venture between the European PLC, the British PLC and an American NASDAQ company. I was running it. It was badass. And, you know, making all kinds of money and just, you know, I had three apartments, one in Lisbon, one in Berlin and one in Chicago. I had three cars, three sets of suits, three, you know, everything. It was like, yeah, you know, I'm rolling. This is the man. Um, and <clears throat> the reason these two companies work together is because the two CEOs were friends, both listed British stock market um, and in the New York Stock Exchange. Well, both boards got together and did a um, hostile takeover of both companies at the same time and ousted both CEOs at the same time. And with that, I lost my job. So, you know, I lost my, I wasn't, it wasn't a job. I was a contractor, but still it was, I lost a contract. Yeah. I was always like a, no one ever knew I was a contractor because they wanted me, they wanted everybody to think I'm part of the team, which I was, I felt like I was part of the team. It's just that for tax reasons and for revenue reasons, I wanted to, you know, be self-employed, of course. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> right before that happened, I went back, I was going back to Berlin and I couldn't get a hold of my ex-wife and couldn't get a hold of her, couldn't get a hold of her. And I'm like, what the hell's going on? Finally, someone called me and told me she had an accident and broke her back. I was like, oh, shit. So I yeah. you know, got in a plane from Chicago, went home, went to her, and I saw there was something going on. Looked across the hallway. There was a buddy of mine also in the hospital. Ended up they were cheating. The other had an accident, and both of them like broke bones and stuff. So that was over fairly quick, um, <laughs> that relationship. Yeah. I had been with her for 10 years. And, um, <clears throat> so that was over. And then I went back to the office uh, and said, Hey guys, I'm back from Chicago a little early. And they're like, well, good. You're here. Cause we got to talk your job's over. Right. So, you know, that was like, that was like the same day. Yeah. And then within, within three days I had made an investment, um, a bad investment, I guess that basically went South and just took all my money. So suddenly no one, no, no relationship anymore. Like no wife, no job and no money. <laughs> 2002. So I'm sitting there in my, in my apartment one day with some friends going, what am I going to do? Um, just wondering. And, you know, in Germany, it's not too bad. You know, if you're, you know, you can somehow make it through because they have social structures there. So I'm sitting there not wondering, wondering what I'm going to do. And they saw a shoebox on top of my computer and they said, what's that shoebox? And I said, well, that's the notes that I would write down when I was in the bar in my bars and there wasn't much going on. I, you know, write something down. And by the way, the bars were still there, you know, so um, but I wasn't managing them or running. I would just show up and say, Hey, what's up guys? And then we'd leave. That's about it. And, uh, on, in that shoebox were the notes that I wrote and it was all about my time in the golf war. So they read it and they're like, wow, you need to write a book. And I was like, I'm 35 years old. Who wants to read my book or 34, whatever it was. 
And so I said, all right, whatever. So I wrote, I don't know, like 10 pages, I think, and sent it out to six publishers. One publisher picked it up, came to my house, interviewed me, came out in the newspaper in March 2003. And if you remember, March 2003 was when the war started in Iraq this time. Mm. So on the day the war started in 2003, my article came out, a full, full size, page three, Berliner newspaper. And that shot me right to the top. Um, the next day I was on national TV in front of 15 million people. And my book went to bestseller before it was even written. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was crazy. Uh, Pre-orders like crazy. And I, I, I basically had a whole year on TV every day or traveling around reading out of my book to large crowds up to 3,000 people. So that sort of saved me, but it didn't get me anywhere, you know? Yeah. Because when, when that was over, basically I went back to that same company, the British PLC, and I took on a position um, just in northern Germany instead of the whole the whole continent, right? So I crushed it, of course, because it was for me it was like peanuts, you know. I was used to running, running you know, eighty seven locations, and uh, then I got you know, then I moved on to another company. I got my MBA in the, in, in Bradford in the UK, you know, and I just um, I just kept going. So when I was at you know two thousand six and seven, five six and seven, things were going really well again. And my brother, my twin brother, had a um, mortgage charter in America. And if you remember five, six, and seven, they were massive years. Yeah. Of, uh, you know, I'm talking like $50,000 a day cash earnings every day. You know, it was sickening. So we ended up investing in, you know, producing films. So we were out there, you know, hobnobbing with Hollywood and New York. And then we figured out a way to leverage real estate for <clears throat> no money down uh, loans for movies. And that came out in the New York Times and said, look, a new, a new way to finance films. Re remember, this was back when investment banks were legal. Uh, so, you know, we were doing deals with the Seminole Indians, the Hard Rock Cafe. I mean, it was crazy. We were just out there just throwing money. And then, of course, late 2007, early 2008, it all so crashed like nobody's yeah. business. Not only did it crash, but most, most of the movies crashed and all of our money was gone once again. And this, this time it wasn't just me. It was my brother, too. Uh, and that's when it got really tough. And at the time I was in a toxic relationship um, and, you know, she treated me really, really bad. And I let it happen because at that time I felt like shit because I just lost everything again. Right. So you sort of beat yourself up, you know, and we were driving on the road one day and um, I was just, you know, I was homeless. I didn't have a place to go. I rented my own apartment out because I couldn't afford it because I didn't have any money. So I rented it out to a, a guy that I had met and we became friends. He was, a, he was another American guy. So on weekends, I could sleep on my own sofa sometimes if I wanted to, right? Lucky <laughs> was, you, lucky you. Yeah, I know, right? right? And I'd stay at friends' houses if I was fighting with her, which I always was, and I had friends and buddies. Sometimes I slept in my car, you know. And um, one day, we're driving down the road with my, my girlfriend at the time, and she started getting on me again. I was like, you know what, just get out, I'm sick of it. So she got out, and I hit the gas, right? And I sped off. And literally 100 meters down the road was a speed trap. Cops pulled me out. At the time, I was like, you know, a 136-kilo bodybuilder. I was huge, right? And uh, I got out, snot running out of my nose, crying, you know, just completely out of myself, you know, and just at the end of my rope because I was broke. I didn't have anywhere to go. I was homeless. My girlfriend treated me like shit. I felt like shit. It was just horrible. It was like the end for me. And I got out, and they're pulling me. They're all, like, wondering what's going on with this big guy. Why is he speeding? Why is he crying? And believe it or not, police officers in Germany are very social. They're very, very kind, like, 98% of them have never drawn their weapon, you know? So that's how social they are.
So people think they're hardcore, but they're not. Um, <clears throat> so they're there talking to me, trying to figure out what's going on. She walks up because uh, it was only 100 meters and said, oh, he's a, he's a war, um, a war um, criminal. He murdered people and just started saying some crazy shit. Right. And I just freaked out. And I looked to my left and there was a, I guess, a trainee police officer. And beside her was a guy, and beside me was a guy, and there was some people around, some some police officers around my my ex. And I looked down, and literally in slow motion, I reached down, unsnapped her holster, and grabbed her gun. Right, and I was, you know, gonna end it all right there. My girlfriend's like, "Do it, do it, do it," you know. And this little girl, like, spun around in front of me, put her hand on top of mine, and just put it her weapon back into the holster. And the reason that happened was because I was so shocked that this little girl would turn around and face me like that. And she said, this is not you, Stephen. I, I know you. Mm. And I was like, what? You know, shocked. Like, with, you know. And anyway, so they tackled her. My girlfriend took her around the corner because she was being weird. And uh, they took me to the side, put me in the paddy wagon, let me calm down. I explained the situation and apologized. And um, they kept my car and my license but sent me home. But I didn't have a home. Yeah. So I went to my apartment. I went to my apartment. My buddy was there. He was just leaving. I walked in and uh, I just sat there for a while. Telling me, I said, I, I just screwed up. They're going to charge me with something. You know, like I grabbed the weapon. I'm done. You know. So um, I go into my closet and I get my dress greens, my uniform with all the ribbons and stuff on it and stuff. And I hung it up on the door and made it straight and nice. And took a picture of myself in uniform, put it underneath, pulled out a K-bar which is a, a bayonet from the Marines, which is razor sharp. You can split a hair with it. And I put it to my neck and I just was going to go. And then as soon as I did that, I heard a knock on the door. I was like, fuck, I can't even kill myself. You know, it was like, it was, that's how low I was. You know, I couldn't even get, you couldn't even finish myself off. So I went to the door and it was that little police girl. And she's like, can I come in? I'm like, uh, yes. And, and she came in and took, again, took my hand, put the knife down. And led me into my own living room and talked to me for maybe three to four minutes. And, you know, said, like, I know you. I was one of your readings when, you were, when your book came out. You're a fantastic person. This is not who you are. You're a loving guy. You can spread love around the world. Just hang in there. You're going to make it. And I'm like, who's this? Who is this? Yeah. So Just still shocked. You know? yeah. yeah, yeah. Still shocked. She gets up and says, you know, bye. See you. And walks out the door. And I'm standing there going did that just happen or did I just, you know, did I just make that up in my head? I mean, did, did I fall off the edge now or what's going on? You know, but I knew that I, I couldn't be alone. So I called my buddy in Austria and I said, look, man, Michael, um, if you don't come get me, I'm not going to be here tomorrow. I just know it. I'm just, I'm, I'm done. So he sent an airplane ticket, literally immediately sent an e-ticket and I flew to Austria, picked me up and dropped me off at a monastery <laughs> at a Benedictine monastery. Yeah. So. Now, this is, what, this is what I find fascinating now. This is what I'd love to talk to you about because I've, there's a guy who I listen to a lot. He's a poc- he got a podcast. His name's Jay Shetty. You might have heard of him. Um, yes. he, 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 he was a monk as well. He went and lived with monks. And he's fascinating, some of the stuff that he learned whilst living with monks and was a monk himself. I'd love to know what you learned there like you went again you almost you went in a broken same sort of scenario if you with yeah. the arm you went in a broken person and you've come out a completely new person yeah. so when you were what are some of the teachings that you followed in there what are some of your key takeaways what right. lifestyle did you have to adopt essentially oh well the, the lifestyle was three meals a day and um if you wanted to you could work in the garden and stuff which i didn't i just meditated all the time see now benedictine monks uh they meditate 
So mm -hmm. it was great. They had meditation rooms. You can, they had a meditation garden. They had a Roman garden with five or six, or maybe even eight different, um, you know, meditation places within the garden. And they had, it was surrounded by forests and hills and trees. And it was in the middle of nowhere, basically. And basically what, what I realized was, you know, I went in, I'm like, okay, guys, monks, listen up. I know you guys are like wicked solid and stuff. Okay, this, this is my problem. I got this, this, that, 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 let's go. And they're like, go take a walk in the forest. And I was like, what? And I said, what about some answers? He goes, the answers come from within my son. You don't, you don't get answers from us. Mm. You know, we'll help you. We'll guide you, but you don't get answers. So, um, you know, I went to the forest and I was like, Jesus, what, it, uh, you know, what am I doing here? So I slept for the first three days, basically. But what happened was, is I stripped away slowly, but surely I didn't do it purposely. It just sort of fell away. Uh, any, the ego, the pride, the, the wants, the wishes, um, just that whole thing that society says that we have to fulfill sort of, you know, get this and get that and be this and be that and earn this and earn that, you know, all that stuff. It just fell away. It was, it was, it was pointless. Um, and then it, once I got past that part of it, it's sort of, um, I got to the spiritual side and then I, and, and it wasn't about just God. It was like the universe too. It wasn't, it was the universe. It was God. It was Jesus. It was angels. It was everything. I just started meditating constantly. So I would close my eyes and open them up. It'd be like eight hours like that. Because when you do, I had no cell phone, no laptop, told nobody where I was except for Michael and my, and my parents. Didn't pay my, any bills that I had. Didn't, didn't nothing. It just, I didn't do anything. Like no one knew where I was and it didn't matter. So I was completely, completely disconnected with everything in the outside world. So I had to deal with me. Right. And dealing with yourself is difficult because you have that inner dialogue. And when that inner dialogue ends and falls away, you have a lot of space in your head like a lot of time during the day suddenly. And you're like, what the, my head's empty. Like, I don't, what do, what do I do now? <laughs> you know, Cause there's nothing to think about anymore. Right. So you go within and then you still went, when I was in, I learned, um, you know, they, they chant, right. And when they chant, it's like a vibration that goes through your body. So that's sort of, um, that's, they do that at five 45 in the morning in the, in the small, um, it was a, a, red, a, a night's chapel from like 930 or something was the date. And, so you go in there and the vibrations of the dome ceiling, it was really small, would vibrate through your body and that would set you up for the day. And then you go to breakfast with the monks and then you go to church if you wanted. And everyone was sitting in church like this and I'm sitting like this, you know, <laughs> meditating with my hands out and, you know, accepting and stuff. And it, it really uh, stripped away all of the outside influences of anything or anyone trying to make influence me and in being who or what or whatever I should be. So I met myself for the first time in my life. And I actually liked what I saw, you know, after it was all yeah. peeled away and the crying and the, you know, all these kind of things and, and all of the sorrow and the feeling sorry for myself. I, I was like, I'm, I'm pretty cool. I'm a pretty cool dude, you know? So yeah. I, I, I learned to love myself. I learned to love myself. I learned to accept myself, even my flaws as a part of me, as a, you know, something that, that I embrace. And I use that as a source to this day, whenever I feel any sort of resistance or down or whatever it is. So, but what happened after that was, is after about, I don't even remember, it was like eight months or something. I went to the map, my, Michael can't pick me up and he said, man, you're way too, you can't go back to society yet. You're just, you're still, you're way like up there spiritually wise or whatever. You're just too fragile. So he brought me into the woods, into the mountains, even higher near the snow caps. And I lived in a little wooden hut for a couple of weeks to just to sort of climatize by myself. What happened there was I went into a, I don't even know, like a two or three day meditation. I can't even remember. It was like I was in a trance or something. 
And that's when everything changed um, for me. It, it was like a solidification of solidification of who I was for real. Yeah. And I, I, I rooted in who I was. I like my roots grew and built this foundation of who I really am. And then someone saw me living there and then more and more people would come up. And after a couple of days I had, you know, 15, 20 people every single day from the villages coming up just to sit and talk to me. Like I was some guru or something, you know, all, all I was missing was the beard. So, and funny enough is I realized at that time, this is where one of my concepts come from creating space um, is when you listen to people and you hear what they have to say and what they actually mean uh, that you have solutions for them. Even if you don't no idea what you're talking about. Because the problems that they see are typically only perceived problems and not the actual problem. The actual problem comes out uh, when they talk. And if you allow someone uh, to step into their own greatness because you're creating space and you have no expectations and your only intention is to add value by solving problems, um, you're going to see magic in your life. And that, and that goes for a business meeting as well. You know, every meeting I go into, even this podcast, you know, I, I have no preconceived notions, no cookie cutter solutions, no agenda. I'm here to add as much value as I can and solve problems if I can. Hmm. And that's what I did with these people and it just turned into something magic. So I went back to Berlin and um, did that for a year. Literally got paid to just sit and talk to people for a year. And I wasn't a doctor or anything like that. It just people just wanted to talk to me. Yeah. And I did that for, I actually did that for a whole year. And the, the I'm glad I did too because it really solidified a lot inside of me. Um, and to this day, I have people that fly me all over the world to talk to their friends or family or like my one friend, his father was dying. He sent me there to talk to his father. And, and it's sort of like, it's like a grounding, you know, mm. we do a little more than talk, but you know, it's just a, you know, something I can't explain because I never learned it. It just happens. Yeah. And um, so when I was in Berlin, I was, I was just, I loved it. I didn't care about money. I didn't care about anything. I was just free, completely free. And I got a call from the old corporation. They're like, Hey, we got a job for you. I'm like, nah, I'm done. No, no more corporations. And, stuff. and they said, um, well, it's in Budapest. And I was like, Oh, makes you know, a change. Just, something hit me. Like you got to go to Budapest. I'm like, why do I, why? Anyway, literally two days later, I said, let me go check it out. So <clears throat> they paid me a lot of money to do it. So I flew down to Budapest. The first day ever in Budapest, the first day ever in the new business, the first person I saw, I said, that's my wife. And that was 10 years ago and we're married still and we have two kids. So when I found myself and I was so sure of who I was and rooted in, in the, the belief that I was valuable, my partner, the perfect partner presented herself right in front of me. And we got married. Yeah, and I still live in Hungary. Yeah. And I think this just that that whole lesson as well of like being true to who you are and not being influenced by the outside world. Such an important lesson, especially in today's society when we have got things like social media, Instagram, Facebook, where especially the younger generation are heavily influenced by what they see on those platforms. And they are often molded or feel as if they have to be something in which they aren't, especially with all these celebrities posting images of just bodies that are unrealistic because they've been bought essentially and right there are in the going back to entrepreneurship there are entrepreneurs on there that literally just flaunt this glamorous lifestyle and haven't presented their whole journey they are literally showing the final destination they're showing the highlight reel in the essence of they are just showing the fancy cars the nice holidays and all the all the byproducts of what they've achieved 
when really we haven't actually got to see the journey of, for example, say if you were to go on Instagram and post some of the things you can buy now, no one would know what you've been right. through to be able to get to that right. point today. And I just think it's a poor representation of a lifestyle in which they've had to work to achieve in a sense. Well, you, you'll, you'll see once you get to the point, get to a point where let's say I've gotten or a lot of other people have gotten, you see those people and you're like, oh, good for them. You know, um, they have uh, the whole, they're like, if this was a scale, they're like this right now, mm. right? So they're on the material side. They'll find this side eventually. They have to. Yeah. If they don't, they're going to they're gonna keep buying more stuff because they need it to fulfill that gap that they have, that hole, that, that, that void that they have inside of them of that value, that worth that they're missing, um, in my opinion. Uh, you know, and it's, it's our book, Unleash Your Humble Alpha. It addresses especially that. Now, Un Un Unleash Your Humble Alpha is a book about finding your identity. And when you find your identity, <clears throat> your, your purpose crystallizes, just like my wife crystallized in front of me. And when your when your purpose crystallizes, it amplifies your identity, giving you an, a presence like few people have. So mm. when you walk into a room, people don't have to see you or or hear you; they just know you're there. Um, and again, um, you're so self assured that that presence is speaks loud and clear without you ever saying a word. And what that does for you is it creates a world um, of what we call you know it leads you to quality of life. Because you're not, there's a lot of steps in it. So we have, you know, in, in the book, if I could just run through them real quick, we have hit honesty, integrity, transparency, like I said, right? Yeah. So honesty with yourself and why you do what you do. Transparency is how you step into the world with that, with that honesty and integrity is a byproduct. Now, when you're living by hit, you do one thing. You only concentrate on the intention and not on the outcome or an expectation. Expectations are guaranteed letdowns. So either you have no expectation or you verbalize that expectation, right? Um, then, then we have, so we have hit and then we have what I call life enterprise. So we're the CEO of our own life enterprise, just like a CEO of a business enterprise. And who do we answer to? Just like a CEO of a business enterprise, we answer to the stakeholders. The stakeholders in our life are our family, our friends, people we meet, you know, loved ones and that kind of stuff. And our job with them is to elevate them and to leave them in a better place than when you walked up to them and when you met them, no matter what time of day it is. And I'm talking the postman, you see him, make sure you leave him in a, in a better mood, a better um, um, you know, elevation than when you met him. And the way you do that is you create space, like I said before, intention only, no preconceived notions, no cookie cutter solutions, just show up and add value by solving problems. Now, if you wanna dip, you know, deepen those relationships and then you do what I call Investing in relational capital and investing in relational capital is digging even deeper, doing more, um, working on working with them together, collaboration, joint ventures, whatever it is, and really helping them excel because it's about them in this moment. It's not about you. And when you put others first, you're putting yourself first automatically, in my opinion. So, and all of that. So, hit life enterprise, creating space, really, relational capital, that all leads to what we call quality of life. And quality of life is, of course, you know, relative to everybody like we talked about before. But what it is, is us, is this integration of that person, that identity, that presence across all aspects of life, body, mind, relationships, and business. So you're not this guy who says, you know who I am? I'm the CEO. No, I'm sorry. That's what you do. But who are you really? Oh, you don't know. Of course you don't know. Most people don't. So that's why it's important that we, we work with business leaders uh, not only in the book, when in our program, my partner, Lane Ballone, is also a, a Green Beret, Special Forces Green Beret. Um, we work with uh, business leaders and helping them find out who they really are. Because you know how it is. They're at work. They're powerful. They're strong. And they go home and they're like, you know, sit down and you know, do the dishes or whatever. Like they, they get treated badly because 
they're not home when they're home. Mm. They're not present when they're home. They're not with the kids. They're not with the wife. They're still thinking about work. And why? Because that's where they grab their value and their self-worth. Because they don't have that inner identity of, wow, this is who I am. And I'm so worth it, man. I'm so worth it. And once you have that, all of those things that you think you need to do fall away and you rise up all by yourself with an, a presence that's integrated through your entire life that makes you a powerful, powerful person everywhere you go without saying a word, without being you know, boisterous or loud or egotistical, nada. And that's where we get people. And that's why I like to think that I am. And that's why I can work four hours a day and I'm not worried about it because I have no expectations on that, 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 this is what I'm going to do. This is the outcome, you know, that, that may or may not happen. And I'm going to focus on the intention, go for it. And that's it. And things fly my way every day, every day. Yeah. So you found who you truly were when you went and lived in this monastery, but that's an extreme version of trying to find yourself for me or for a listener. How would they go about, starting to find their true self without having to go and live in a monastery with monks. Well, that's why we wrote the book, you know, because I've had this question a hundred times. Yeah. And, uh, you know, more than a hundred times and everyone I meet go meets like, like I had, I've had CEOs that you would heard, you would have heard of really well-known leaders. And, the, and after they see me speak, they're like, I, I want what you have. How do you, what, what, what do you do? How do you, you know, they couldn't even put it in words. Like, how can you be always be so sure of what you're saying? How can you always be present? How is that? And I said, because I know who I am. They're like, well, how does that work? And I said, well, tell me who you are. Well, I'm the CEO of, no, that's what you do. Who mm -hmm. are you? And so you got to dig really, really deep. And that's why the book takes you through identity, purpose, and certainty. So identity of who you are, why you do what you do. Purpose is, you know, of course, um, you know, your, your chariot, if you will, which amplifies your identity. And you get then through that certainty and unknowing. And when you know, you need not say. You yes. just know. And other people know you know because they feel it through the presence and boom. So the book is specifically written for that exact question. Grab the book, humblealphabook.com. I will leave that in the show notes below as well. I'll give you the chance to plug everything else at the end of the episode and I'll just get everyone to go down to the show notes <laughs> to click away. Um, something I do want to talk about is how you had the opportunity to work with Mick Jagger and Andrea, Andrea Bocelli, which I not so much want to talk about the sense of what you did for them, but more the lesson in the fact that you if you can seek opportunities rather than wait for the opportunities to come to you. So you yeah. can give a bit of background to the story and how those sort of opportunities came about and how people can adapt that to their everyday life. Oh yeah. This is, this is a great, a great lesson. Well, you know, in 1998, I was listening to the radio in Berlin and I had, my bar was open. So I was there and, um, I said, Oh yeah, the stones are coming to Berlin. They're going to do a tour. They're going to do a concert in Berlin. Then they're going to go to Leipzig. They're going to come back to Berlin. And, um, and at the end they're like, Oh, we're looking forward to it. Stones in Berlin. First time ever in the, you know, since 1969 and in, in, in this one place, and at the end, they said his bodyguard's staying in London because he hurt his back. <clears throat> and I heard that. I'm like, shit, he, he needs a bodyguard. So I went to the hotel where he was staying. Um, and I knew everybody in, in the hotel industry there because I, I used to have a Thursday nights where anyone who worked in the hotel or restaurant and business could come to my bar and drink it for half price. So it was just like, you know, I, so I made, made business and made friends. So I went in there, waited for Mick Jagger. When he walked down, I walked up. I hey, 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 Mick Jagger, how you doing? I'm your new bodyguard. And he's like, uh, looked at his, like his entourage, like, what? Who sent you? I said, I sent me. He goes, what, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm an American. I speak German. 
I, I know the city like the back of my hand and uh, I'm a bodyguard. And he was like, talk to CJ. And I talked to CJ and CJ's like, I got one question for you and you got the job. And I'm like, shoot. And he was like, um, do you know where you get the best German sausage? I sure do. He goes, how's 400 bucks a day? Sounds good to me. Done. And so what I did there is I went up with zero expectations. I presented a solution to a problem, right? He, he didn't have a bodyguard. He needed a bodyguard. I, prevented, I presented more than a solution because I spoke English, right? I was in local, even though I was an American. And I was, it was military, um, uh, you know, trained uh, military and I was bodyguard. So he couldn't say no. And another thing I did, which people didn't even notice when I did it, and maybe you didn't either, is I used his full name. So I didn't say, hey, Mick, because that would be disrespectful. He would, I don't know who he is. He doesn't know who me am. If I say Mr. Jagger, then it's like, oh, who's this guy? I say Mick Jagger. Everyone was, I did the same thing with Bill Clinton. Hey, Bill Clinton, how you doing? Actually, I said, hey, William Jefferson Clinton, how you doing? And he went, hey, how are you? Like, like what? You know? <laughs> yeah. So that's how you break the ice immediately because you use their entire name. Um, Andrea Bocelli, basically the same thing. I was in a barbershop in Dusseldorf, uh, an Italian bar barbershop, my favorite barbershop. These guys are hilarious. They're soccer fans. They just, they just fight all the time. It's hilarious. And a, a couple walked in and this couple happened to be, he was Italian, she was Bulgarian. They happened to be the opening act for Andrea Bocelli worldwide and their classic guitar duo. And after we got to talk and they're like, wow, could you be our manager? And I was like, first of all, I just met you. Second of all, I, I know nothing about the music industry. So I said, who's your boss? And they said, well, Andrea manages us right now, Andrea Bocelli. I was like, okay, um, let's get a meeting. So we set up a meeting a couple of weeks later in London where there was a concert. So I flew with my wife met Andrea. The next day I said, see you tomorrow at the hotel at the meeting. Um, he didn't show up. His wife did Veronica, who's a tiger. Like I'm talking toughest woman I ever met. And Alicia, her, her, um, her assistant who was a looker as well. So, and, uh, you know, so I showed up there in the hotel, like, okay, Andrea's not here. I can deal with this. And basically what I, what I said was, this is your problem. This is the solution that I can add. Plus I know you have X, Y, and Z issues right now. I can deal with those as well. Like he needed to renegotiate contracts and stuff. And she's like, what? what do you want? And I was like, I want 20% of everything I bring in. Or maybe it was 10%. I can't I think it was 20% of everything I bring in. And I want a retainer, a monthly retainer. And she's like, a monthly retainer? Nobody gets a monthly retainer in the music industry. Nobody. And I said, well, I'm not nobody. You know, this is the way I do it. It's up to you. I'm, you know, like I said, I'm just offering. I know I can do it. It'd be, it'd be fantastic. It'd be an honor. If not, no harm done. It was nice meeting you. And she's like, no, 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 no. And a couple minutes later, I walked out with a retainer. Worked worked for them for two years. Do you and, think not being in the music industry in that scenario did help you? Um, no, I think there's a lot of people not in the industry that would have never gotten a chance to do that. It, it, what it was is I created space. I didn't mm. it didn't matter to me if I got the job or not. It, 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 honestly, it didn't. It was all about solving their problem. I only cared about. The problems that I knew that they had, the problems that I heard that they had, and how I could solve them. That was it. It's not like, well, I can do this and I can do that. It wasn't that kind of solving. It was just, you know, listening and innuendos and soft, you know, that kind of stuff. And like I said, look, I can work on this for you. I can fix this. I can get to all the CEOs of all the, all the major record labels by myself. I can get them all on the phone and I'll, I'll make appointments and I'll fix this for you. Yeah. And they're like, and I, in my mind, I'm thinking like, it's not even an issue. But in reality, I've never done anything like that before in, in the music industry. But within two weeks, I was in every CEO's office and every record label's office talking to, talking to the head honcho, you know? So, and that was the same reason, like, it's going to happen. 
I started calling people. Hey, do you know anybody from the record industry? Yeah, this guy. Okay, let me call him. Hey, man, I need to, I need the number of you know Rhino Records, Warner Brothers, Universal, Sony. You know, I got him. And then I called yeah. them. I did the same thing. How you doing, Stephen Cohen? Nice to meet you. I'm, I'm calling from Andrea Bocelli. I want to talk about a few situations with a couple of contracts. You got five minutes for coffee. And the one, the one woman from Sony said, she said, you don't come from this industry, do you? I said, I <laughs> certainly don't. She goes, thank God. When can you be here? <laughs> so, yeah. And, and what the lesson there is, is you have to be detached from the outcome. right? Yeah. You must detach yourself from the outcome. When you focus on the intention of adding value, the rest of it takes care of itself. They're going to want to have you. Like when I said to her, hey, you know, if you say, if, if, it's, if, if it's not for you, then that's cool. I'll just leave. You know, we're done. It's okay. When someone says that to you, a powerful person, they're like, like, why is this guy so self-assured? Like, why does it not matter? I want him. It's, an, it's, it's a magnet. Yeah. But you can't do it to get that effect because it won't work. You literally have to go the proper way and focus on the intention and focus on adding value. That's the key. You can't say, I'm going to act like I don't want it because that's, they'll feel that resistance. And anytime there's an expectation, because if you say, I'm going to act like this, that means you're expecting something. As soon as there's an expectation, you're going to feel a little bit of resistance there from me because I'm trying to get you somewhere. And that resistance will raise your guard and make you pull back, even if it's, if it's psychologically, you know, subconscious. And you'll feel it, and it's not going to fly. It's not going to go as smooth as it does when you just completely let go of the outcome. Yeah. And a way to relate, because so, just a bit of background, my audience are majority 18 to 25. So 50% of my audience is between those eight, that age bracket. And something they could do, they could be thinking that they don't have any chance in the world at doing work for said influencer or top entrepreneur or any business. And you are saying find the solution to the problem so say an entrepreneur hasn't got a social following and yet you know that they're being credible on social and you can create great yet say they post videos here there and everywhere but they're not on instagram they're not on twitter they're not on facebook this and the other you can break down their content for them if you're good at editing videos and you provide this solution to this problem the fact that they're not on other social platforms that's a great way of having that opportunity to work with them it's fine as you said finding that solution to the problem. But don't, don't lead with your, with your business as a solution. Yeah. yeah. You know, lead with a, with a solution. You know, I, I got a mail the other day from a very big ad agency. Um, very big. Uh, they actually do like uh, movie style ads, you know, short movie style ads. And they said, we would like to work for you for free and make video for you. Take about three months because it's professional. And, um, once, uh, and we'll just take a cut of whatever you earn through those leads that we generate. You know I mean? That, that to me, I was like, that's a no brainer. I mean, come on. You know I mean? Like, why wouldn't I do that? Right. You see what I mean? That's different Mm -hmm. than the 150,000 pitches I get. Hi, I'm a digital marketer. I can do this. I can do that. I can do this. I can do that. I just, I don't even answer them. It's just, it's like, I usually go thanks. And then that's it. But if someone leads with true value, right. And the, you can't say no, like that guy, I, you know, I could never afford, or maybe I could, but I wouldn't want to afford, yeah. you know, doing a, doing a three month project for one video. It just wouldn't make sense to me. And um, he's so assured in himself as well that his, yeah. his, his video is going to be able to produce the value that he's willing to put the money in beforehand yeah. because he knows that the money he's going to produce from the cut is going to be more than what it's been put in basically. Exactly. And that's what I mean by leading with value. Mm. 
Like he could say, you know, he could say, hey, I'll pay for it. No, he didn't say that. He said, let me work for you, make a video for free. And then at the end, when you start making money, if you don't make any money, you don't pay me. I mean, what? why wouldn't I do that? You mm. see what I'm saying? And people are out there right now, yeah, but I need money. I can't just go and work for free. Well, look, <laughs> you know, if you, if you want to work your way up and through um, different, look, man, I mean, seriously, I, it wasn't only Mick Jagger and Andrea Bocelli. It was Olivia Newton-John. It was politicians. It was the Royals. It, I mean, I was invited to Prince Harry's 18th birthday party. I didn't go, but I was invited. Um, you know, I was dating a duchess. I mean, it was like ridiculous, ridiculous. And that's because I knew who I was and my roots were solid. And I, would, I could walk up to the Duchess, to Bill Clinton, to Mick Jagger, to a politician, whoever it was, and I was me. And yeah. everyone accepted me because of who, how I felt about me. It wasn't about how they felt about me. It was how I felt about me that they felt. They felt that presence. They felt that self-love. They felt that how comfortable I am in my skin. That's what it's all about. So I don't have to look for things to talk about. I listen. I don't talk. I listen. I listen to what they need, what they want, where their problems are, how I can help them, what problems I can solve for them. If you're known as a problem solver, you, you can't save yourself from business. You can't. Awesome. Yeah, so look, you know, 18 to 25, what an amazing age. You're, you're immortal at that age. You are literally immortal at that age. There's nothing stopping you from doing whatever the hell you want to do. If you want to go, go to New York, and wait for Robert De Niro to walk down the street, go do it and go talk to him, right? I mean, don't think about what you're going to do. Just go up there and lead with value. Whatever it is you want. Like, that's why I never had a career. You know, I wanted to go bodyguard, I did bodyguard. I wanted to open a bar, I opened a bar. I wanted to work in politics, I opened po I worked in politics. I wanted to, you know, speak at the parliament, three different parliaments. I did it. I just made it happen. It wasn't like it was a, an issue. Hell, I started, I started my online business three years ago. And all I did was went, found my demographic, right, which was veterans, military veterans. I went into a veteran group of 3,000 people and just started giving free value every day, a live video about 10 to 15 minutes every day, exactly what you need to do from A to Z to fix this problem, that problem, this problem, revenue, sales, operations, whatever it was. And I never held back. I always said, this is how you do it. And within three months, I had $100,000 worth of contracts of people that said, man, I love what you do. Can you do it for me? Yeah. And within those same three months, I was on six different stages in America from zero, never been online before, only had a Facebook page with pictures of my wife. And within three months, I'm the number two military veteran entrepreneur influencer in America. And I don't even freaking live there. <laughs> right. Why? Because I went into a group of my demographic and I added value. And now I own that group and we have 14,500 veteran entrepreneurs. And we have, uh, you know, um, different tiers and I mean, everything. So it's... And, and I've, I've, I'm very, you know, well known in the veteran space now because of that. And, and that was in three years. So, you know, I did it because I wanted to do it. It wasn't because I needed to survive. I said, you know, what's going to bring me joy right now? How about if I help the guys that got out of the army and they're all feeling like shit like I did when I got out of the army? Well, this woman, let me go do that. That's going to that's gonna give me joy. Because what happens when you're in a bad mood and you help somebody? Then you end up being in a great mood. Yeah. So, you know, when I'm depressed or I feel down and believe me, I get depressed and I feel down, you know, I have PTSD, I'm disabled from the war and stuff like that. So I get, you know, I get, I get my time. So the first thing I do is get on the phone and who needs help? <laughs> you know, who needs help? I'll put it in Facebook. Who, who needs help? You know, and I just help. I feel fantastic. That's again, leading with value. Awesome. I think that is a great way to end off the bulk of the episode. And you've in, you've answered all my questions 
is far beyond my expectations. So thank you so much for that. But it's not over yet. I do have a final five that I do ask every single guest on the show. Okay. Just quick five questions, quick okay. fire answers. So question number one, who is the first person that comes to mind when I say the word successful? Uh, my dad, my father. Any, any particular reason? Yeah, because he was, man, he was beaten down a few times, uh, ripped off, um, had a few crashes and stuff, but he just, he, he kept that even keel. You know, he always kept trucking, kept moving forward. Nice. I think I just showed my age, didn't I? Kept trucking. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't, don't worry. <laughs> Question number two, what is the best investment you've ever made? So this can be money, time, energy, yeah. or simply an Amazon purchase. Um, the best investment I ever made would have to be uh, in, in, changing the way that I reacted to my partner, um, yeah. finding a way to not react, but to act proactively, um, and to uh, fulfill what she needs as a priority without, you know, without leaving me out in the dry, if you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think the investment that I took speaking to a coach on how to deal with, uh, you know, cause my wife's 21 years younger. So sometimes I feel, I feel like just, educating her instead of letting her make her own sort of life. And so I had, I think that was the best investment I ever made because our relationship is amazing because of that. And I like that. That's a, that's a new answer to that question. So thank you for that. Thank you. Question number three, do you have a quote that you live by or think of often? Never ever delegate. Sorry. You can delegate the task, but never the uh, responsibility. I like that. So I like delegate that. the task, never respond. And that's why people say, how can you run five businesses and only work four hours a day? I just told you. I delegate the task. But accept <laughs> the responsibility. Exactly. Awesome. Penultimate question. What advice would you give to your 21-year-old self? I ask this question selfishly because I'm 21 years old. So whatever anyone answers this with, yeah. I just instantly take on board. No one, and I mean no one, gives a guy damn shit about you except for you no one will ever care for more for you i mean barring the parents but when it comes to business life and moving forward no one's going to give a damn about you or you and your success i don't care how many partners you have or how many times you try listen to your gut listen to you you're going the right way just follow through man just follow through stop looking for approval from other people and just fucking go do your shit sorry excuse my french because i get a little mad at my 21 year old (laughs) self So, yeah. Noted. I'm taking all of that on board. Final <laughs> question. Um, it's a bit of a morbid way to end the episode, but I asked this question because I find it incredibly interesting. I do get some really, really cool answers. And it's, are you afraid of dying? You know, it's funny you ask that. My birthday is coming up um, in exactly 15 days. And um, when I was 14 years old, I went to, and to the mall and they had these palm readers. right? And these palm readers, um, they told me I was going to die when I'm 52. Well, I'll be 53 in 15 days, right? So as you hear, it stuck with me all these years. Yeah. And, you know, self-fulfilling, self-fulfilling prophecy. And I, I did get nervous about two years ago. I'm like, holy shit, you know, I'm still, that's still in my head. Like, how can that be? And um, about eight months ago, I was sitting here going, you know, I was meditating really deep. I said, what is this? Why is it still with me? And then I realized, holy shit, I did die at 52. And that was the old me. You know, it was like the last shred of that dried skin I shed this year and became the absolute new version of me. And I was like, yeah, that's what it meant. Wow. And so now I've closed that chapter. So I'm fine. You know what I mean? But no, I'm not, I'm not scared of dying. The only thing that keeps me, that, that makes me think is my children. Cause my children are four and five years old. 
and I want to stick around, you know, so yeah. I'm stick, stick around and see them, see them get married and all that kind of stuff. So actually maybe not, maybe just my son get married, my, my daughter. <laughs> I don't need to see that. <laughs> yeah. See, I knew, I knew I'd get a cool answer. I knew I'd get an interesting answer for you. And that's why I asked that question. Yeah. I think it's, it's a really interesting way to end the episode, but that's all I have for you. And thank right. you for answering all my questions. Now I want to throw it over to you and just give you the opportunity to let the listeners know what you're doing, where you're up to and where they can find you. Sure. So, you know, I, I do consulting, turnaround business consulting and coaching. So business leaders, business owners, entrepreneurs who have issues with growing and scaling their business. Um, like yesterday, I got an I got a appointment in from uh, a woman who has dolphin sanctuaries, like six of nice. them all around the world and needs help in scaling. I was like, that is definitely a new one, you know? <laughs> um, and plus I have entrepreneurs, veterans, um, one-off, you know, digital marketing agencies, all kinds of stuff. I also place products. That means um, if you have a product, you know, back in 2017, I placed a product out of Germany and we did about 50 million in six months. And it was just one single product with six different colors. And so through that, I met all the distributors around the world for big box retailers, Walmart, Target, all those kind of things, you know, and Tesco and Costco. So I place products. So people come to me with a product and I fish it around a little bit. And if they like it, they take it and they get the money. I get money. And we're good to go. And then I do M&A, meaning I, you know, we prepare companies for exits. We structure them. We uh, acquire some companies. I own, a, you know, a few companies. Um, and uh, help people get out of their uh, get out of their own way sometimes because entrepreneurs are famous for being really good at what they do, but really bad at the other things that actually support yeah. the business, right? So we we step in and we help them with what we call a late, late stage incubator. We do some financial triage and we help them you know split out the assets, maybe do a you know do a roll up with some other companies and you know just secure the assets, reduce the debt, or strike it all together. Cool. So what's the best way to reach out to you? Probably, um, you know, Facebook, Stephen Eugene Kuhn or Stephen Kuhn official. Uh, if you want my email, it's Stephen Eugene Kuhn at gmail.com. It's my whole name, Stephen Eugene Kuhn uh, at gmail.com. That's my private mail. You'll get me there. And awesome. I always answer. I always answer all my mails. I will leave all of that in the show notes below and the link to your book, which you mentioned earlier in the episode. But that's all, that's all I've got for you today. And hey, I just want to say again, thank you so much for your time. And everyone, listeners, thank you for listening to this episode of CEO Journals. Yes, love it. Thank you so much. So that's going to wrap up today's episode of the podcast. And I can't thank you all enough for listening. I aim to interview some of the most incredible entrepreneurs every single week. So if you found any value in listening to today's episode, I'd seriously appreciate if you could smash that subscribe button and leave a five-star rating and review. It only takes a couple of seconds and will help me secure some of the greatest names in business as guests on the show. If you want to reach out to me, head over to my Instagram at CEO Journals or send me a connection request on LinkedIn. I'd love to speak to as many of you as possible. Be sure to tune in next week where I'll be talking to another incredible guest where we will be discussing their journey and providing some great tips for all you listeners. I hope you have a lovely rest of your day and once again, thank you for tuning in to today's episode of CEO Journals.